You're listening to the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel, part of AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Young Arthroplasty Group podcast, The Augment. We are really excited today for our podcast series, The Arthroplasty Legends, and today we have uh, Dr. Selvati, who will be joining us. My name is Peter Gold. I'm a arthroplasty surgeon at Panorama Orthopedics in Denver, Colorado. Thank you. And I'm Brian Chalmers. I'm a hip and knee arthroplasty surgeon as well at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. And as Peter alluded to, I'm very honored and, and to welcome Dr. Salvati, someone who I'm very fortunate to call one of my colleagues and mentors. He's really a man that needs no introduction. Uh, he's been a giant and leader in, in arthroplasty, especially hip arthroplasty for many decades, and is really one of the pioneers of our field. And so it's great to have him here today. And, and he's touched the lives of so many people and really revolutionized our craft. And so we thank him for his work and thank him for his time for being here with us today. So we're going to start off, Dr. Salvati, for those that uh, don't know you and specifically know your background, can you just kind of fill us in on where you're from and what kind of early parts in your childhood and your upbringing led you to want to be a physician and then to become a joint replacement surgeon. Thank you, uh, Peter and Brian, for this opportunity and Brian for your kind introduction. I'm originally from Buenos Aires, Argentina, and the reason I joined orthopedics was because of my father, who was an orthopedic surgeon interested in hip surgery. And my early experience with him was taking care of hundreds of patients who were victims of polio. Argentina, in 1956, there was a terrible polio epidemic. And my first surgeries with my father were helping him to take care of many of the sequelas of polio. Unfortunately, many patients didn't make it. And uh, I think it was really a miracle that only after a year or two, the Salk vaccine became available and the polio was eradicated. So that was my beginning. I did a residency in Argentina and I got my board certification there. I did also three observative ships in Europe, in Florence, Italy, with Scalietti, at the Royal National Orthopedic Hospital in, in London, and at the Hospital Cochin in Paris. And then when I went back to Argentina, I was lucky to be offered a fellowship at the Hospital for Special Surgery. And I worked in a knee fellowship with John Insel and a hip fellowship with Dr. Philip D. Wilson, Jr. And he asked me to stay 
for a second year. And then when I was about to go back to Argentina to work with my father, he offered me to stay at HSS and offered me to become the chief of the hip service and the co-chief of the children's hip service, which I did with Leon Root for uh, 10 years. And in the adult hip service, I did for about 30, 40 years. And 10 years later, Paul Pellici joined and we both of them ran the service for uh, three, four decades. So that's my background. That's super interesting. You know, I think one thing that's always fascinated me and interests me, and I know something that you know Dr. Parvizi right now is focusing on in terms of AUKUS of trying to involve the international community in arthroplasty more and more. Could you speak a little bit about you know your international? experience with orthopedics and how you feel like that's really kind of shaped you or makes you, you know, maybe a little bit more unique and different than just some people who have just been born and trained in the U.S.? Well, that's a very good question. Of course, I'm from Argentina, so my background is Spanish. And because of that, I have lectured a lot in South America I have been a number of times in Buenos Aires, in Brazil, Colombia, Venezuela, Ecuador. And I'm very fortunate of having very good friends in Latin America. Likewise, after the observership that I did in Florence, Italy, I have remained with close friends also in Italy. We were young at the time, but most several of them progressed to become chiefs and they have been very kind to invite me to to lecture in Italy and France and so I have had the opportunity to be exposed to the larger world and then with Dr. Wilson, John Charnley and Frank Stinchfield in 1981 they proposed me to the International Hip Society. So I became a member of the International Hip Society when it was a rather small group. I think we were, when I was introduced, we were about 35 members. And that also made me, uh, connected me with all the leaders of uh, hip surgery in the world. And then I was secretary treasurer of the International Hip Society for 10 years, from 88 to 98. So that also gave me exposure to the wider world. Do you think there are still significant differences between what's going on in the U.S. and arthroplasty in Latin America and Europe? Or do you think as we become more connected, things are starting to become more aligned and people are working together more in the international community? I think... There are differences, particularly in the fixation of stems. If you look in Europe, especially in the Scandinavian countries, in England, the use of femoral cement fixation is much more frequent than in the States. I think in the States, if you look at the American registry, 
the use of cement fixation on the femur was extremely low in 2010, I think 2012 was the bottom. Now it's starting to increase. But if you compare that, for example, with the experience of the National Registry of the UK, femoral cement fixation is about two-thirds of the number in relation to cementless fixation. And it has continued to increase. And I think in large part is due to the fact that, as you very well know, the National Health Service is very cost conscious. And there was a very good paper by Pennington published in around 2014. Pennington is a medical economist and he looked at the cost benefit of cement fixation versus cementless versus hybrid. And he concluded that hybrid fixation, that means a cementless cup and a cemented stem, is the most cost effective way of fixation. If you consider what with cementless, the risk of fractures, and the risks of loosening, particularly early, be, be it intraop or perioperative fractures, cement fixation, the risk is pretty much negligible. And if you look at the graphs of the UK registry, the number of hybrid fixations continue to increase. Yeah, definitely. I think that it is a big difference between the U.S. and internationally, and we're fortunate as fellows at HSS to work with you and others that still do perfect cemented hips and really learn how to do it well, and a technique that's not forgotten and lost for sure. So, But I wanted to talk about, we had Dr. Padgett on a podcast a month ago or so, and he discussed his time and just a, kind of an amazing time at HSS with great mentors like yourself and Dr. Ranawat and Dr. Wilson and many, many others, uh, Dr. Ingalls. You mentioned Dr. Charnley. So I think, you know, a two-part question. One, what was Dr. Charnley like? And two, who are kind of your mentors that really helped shape you and what did you admire about them? Well, I was very fortunate to visit Charlie when I was a traveling fellow in 1975. And I had the opportunity of seeing him operating and the patients he was operating. You know, he was very, very strict in the indications. <laughs> he didn't do patients who had mild or moderate arthritis. The English patients are tough. They can take pain. They tend to not complain. And Charnley used to do, as I say, patients with very severe arthritis. He was a very effective surgeon. And in those days, patients were admitted several days before surgery, and they remained in the hospital for about two, three weeks. They were all in a big war, no separation between beds. In this rural hospital, you know, I tell you, Charlie, he used to do a lot of arthrodesis of the hip. And then he got disenchanted with ending with a stiff hip 
if the patients, in fact, went on to bony fusion. So he then decided to start using arthroplasty. And he installed in his garage a workshop where he will manufacture the stems, manufacture the cups, sterilize them, and then go to this rural hospital and implanted them. In fact, I have great pictures of John's when he was in his garage working on the design and the manufacture of his prosthesis. Unfortunately, his first experience with the cup was with Teflon, which was a disaster because it wore so quickly that it produces massive osteolysis within a short period of time. So Atencia says when we started with Total Hip, Dr. Philip Wilson and Harlan Amstead chose to use the McKee-Farrar prosthesis, which was a metal-to-metal prosthesis. Although it didn't have Teflon, it had also, it's, the tribology was, was poor, and we published the results at five years, mechanical failure rate was 20%, and the infection rate was 11%. We didn't use prophylactic antibiotics at the time. So in 1969, we switched to the Charnley prosthesis, which by then had a better plastic. And the results at 10 years, which we also published, were much better. We only had three mechanical failures at 10 years, and we only had one or two infections. So in that relatively short period of time, the results improved tremendously. So that was the early experience. Yeah, it's amazing. So, you know, from the garage to the OR and implantation, really a full service hip replacement, definitely. Amazing. Um, so I, along those lines, you know, you kind of alluded to some of the early challenges with, with hip replacements and kind of the designs. In your early career, what were kind of the, the biggest challenges and, and how did you tackle those? And, and what do you think has been the best improvements in, in hip arthroplasty over time since your early career? One of the limitations we had with the early prosthesis was that there were only very few sizes and we were confronted with patients who had very, very severe pathology. In fact, we didn't do patients with mild or moderate arthritis. We, most of the patients we did in the early 70s were patients with very severe pathology. And we also had a number of patients who had severe congenital abnormalities, either congenital or developmental. And we did not have the range of prosthesis, shapes and sizes that we have today. So in around 76, Alberstein, Dr. Wilson, and Tim Wright established a center for the custom design and manufacture of specific components for patients who had significant anatomical abnormalities. And that was a very successful enterprise, and it worked for about 10 years. It was right across the hospital 
And then by the mid-1990s, obviously the commercial companies came out with enough variety of prosthesis that there was no point in continuing designing and manufacturing at HSS. And it was obviously very costly to maintain it. But by then, I think the number was 2,700 or 2,800 specific implants were designed, manufactured, implanted at HSS. So it was a significant advancement of the 70s and 80s. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it seems like, you know, as people noticed that a hip replacement was successful and becoming more and more popular, then the companies got involved and started making prostheses. And then the, the, the variety and array and sizes probably exploded after that. Correct. Well, the indications of total hip exploded in the 70s, in the early 70s, when, you know, patients or we realized that the results were long-lasting and patients regained their ability to move their hips without pain and walk again, etc. It became a very fast-growing operation. Yeah. What do you see about you know, the hip replacement and knee replacement world of today that excites you? Well, what I see when I talked especially to the youngsters, I think there has been a significant shift towards uh, robotics, computer-assisted surgery. For me, I don't see very clearly the indication because, as I said before, we were confronted already in the 70s with very severe pathologies that we were able to deal without the, the computers and the robotics and so on. And I think if you know what you're doing, uh, I think you don't need it. And perhaps before you become an expert on robotics, you should become an expert to do the surgery without it. But from what I see from the younger generation, they're using it more and more. And Brian can tell me more precisely, but when I talk to the fellows, they tell me that at our hospital, the youngsters, probably 50%, are using computer-assisted robotic surgery. I'm sure Brian can comment on that with more uh, precision than me. Yes, I think it's definitely something that's growing throughout the country, especially at HSS. You know, we have six Mako robots and one Rosa, two Corys, and one or two Veluses. So it's definitely something that's that's increasing in utilization, whether or not we're significantly impacting outcomes. That's another topic of discussion and and another but i agree obviously you want to be trained and we tell all of our fellows be trained in manual surgery and how to do the surgery well instead of just only being able to rely on some sort of technology or robotics because you may not always have it and you know it may be cost prohibitive at some point as our society and as our healthcare system becomes continually more more cost conscious so definitely something to be aware of um, you know, I, you can confirm this, uh, Brian. I understand that both Doug Padgett and uh, Amar Ranawat were developers of the MAKO. 
but I don't think they use it anymore. So perhaps they became disenchanted, but you you have to ask them. That's right. Yeah, they were on the design team and I think helped develop the, the platform and the software for, for Mako, but neither use it at this point. So they taught it everything they knew, I guess, and or maybe held some things back. Who knows? <laughs> right. What do you see as kind of the biggest challenges to hip replacement? You know, I think Peter asked what you found most exciting, but what do you think is the biggest threats or challenges to hip and knee replacements now as we've kind of evolved over the last several decades? Our greatest contribution was in the reduction of thromboembolic diseases. Because if you go back to the experience of Charlie, he published the largest series in the late 60s, close to 8,000 total hip replacements done in the hip center. And the fatality due to pulmonary embolism was 1%. And in those patients who were not anticoagulated, it was 2%. And I met more than once Bill Harris at meetings where we were talking about thromboembolic disease. And Bill Harris used to say that if you're going to do total hip replacements, again, this is the early 70s, you have to accept that you're going to lose one or two patients every 100 due to a fatal PE. And I had that very unhappy experience in my early years. I think it was 1973. I had operated a number of parishioners from a Polish Catholic Church in New York, and they funded a bishop from Warsaw, Poland, who had terrible hips, and they brought him to New York so I could do his hip. And I did his hip. He did very well. Three weeks was the usual stay in those days. And Friday, the day he was supposed to leave, the sister came from Poland who didn't speak any English. And she she was supposed to bring him back to Poland. And I had a meeting with her at 9 a.m. And at 8 a.m., I get a call from the nurse that he had a massive PE and he couldn't be resuscitated. So... There's the sister, and I'm trying to explain to her that her brother had just died. And she kept on saying, thank you, thank you, is the only thing she knew in English, until we were able to explain to her that with a translator that the brother had died. So it was a terrible experience. And I decided that I was going to dedicate my career, my clinical research to the reduction of pulmonary embolism. And in the last four or five decades, we did a number of studies. The first one was with Stanford Wessler, who was the dean of NYU. And after this death, I looked who was the expert in thrombosis in New York. And I found that Stanford Wessler was the chairman of the thrombosis committee of the American College of Surgeons. So I called him 
And so I was very surprised to find out that he was very interested in collaborating. I learned after, because we eventually became friends, that he had a total hip by Frank Stinchfield, complicated by a pulmonary embolism. Mm. The first study we did was to compare why total hips are much more thrombogenic than general surgery. So we compared the levels of antithrombin-3, it's a marker of the activation of the cascade, between total hips done by us and general surgery done at NYU. And total hip was much more thrombogenic. And then we started using intraoperative heparin to block the thrombogenesis. And we published with Mike Ho, who was my fellow in 1980 or so, we published that it does reduce the thrombogenesis. And then with Nigel Sharrock in the 90s, with faster markers of thrombosis, with fibronopeptide A, we were able to demonstrate that the activation of the clotting cascade occurs when you invade the intramedullary canal. Nothing happens when you do the exposure. Nothing happens when you prepare the acetabulum. There is a very small increase in the coagulation parameters. But as soon as you invade the canal, the clotting cascade kicks up. Mm. And it peaks at the time of stem insertion. Higher peak with cement fixation. And then when you reduce the hip, it starts coming down, but it remains elevated even one hour after surgery. And you can blunt that activation by giving a small dose, 10 units of uh, heparin intravenously before you invade the canal. And that's what we use in patients who are at high risk of uh, thrombosis. And we got the uh, John Charlie Award for that from the Hip Society. And uh, over the years, we also developed a multimodal prophylaxis that we have implemented. And currently, the incidence of thromboembolic disease is very rare. In fact, I touch wood, but I haven't had a death of pulmonary due to pulmonary embolism in a very long time. So we published all our experience in clinical orthopedics, where we explained exactly the multimodal prophylaxis, and we got the Nicholas Andre Award for that in 2007. And all that is explained in that particular publication. So I think that was probably one of our main contributions. And of course, I didn't do that by myself. But Nigel Sharrock was very influential with his collaboration. Tom Skalko, Hollis Potter, Jeffrey Westrick, and several of the fellows that I had over the years.
But I think that's significantly changed the instance of thromboembolic disease. Very interesting how that's changed over time. We kind of just take it for granted, the low VTE rates now and very low rates of pulmonary embolism with what we do now with the multimodal regimen that you have helped pioneer. And so it's certainly something, you know, that you can imagine a big surgery with cemented stem fixation and then staying in the hospital for three weeks, I can see, you know, the PE rates being being pretty high. And so, like I said, something we take for granted now with such low rates. One thing that I would add In the 80s, the medical industrial complex pushed strongly strong anticoagulation with heparin, with lower NOx. And as a consequence of that, those surgeons who followed that push had a number of bleeding complications, hematomas, even sciatic palsies due to massive bleeds. And we fought that because I think if you follow the multimodal prophylaxis, unless you're dealing with a patient who has a high risk due to thrombophilia or hyperfibrinolysis, if you follow the multimodal prophylaxis, the risk of thrombosis is very low today as we mobilize patients quickly, as we are very aware of trying to minimize the time when the leg is held during surgery in extreme positions that kink completely the venous flow of the femoral vein at the level of the lesser trochanter. So as long as you maintain the flow of the venous, the femoral vein, patent the risk of clots and eventually embolism is significantly lower. As soon as the patient gets to the recovery room, the use of compression, pneumatic compression boots also restores the flow and increases the venous flow, again, limiting the risk of thrombosis. So, I don't think that you need aggressive anticoagulation. And you were trained uh, from what I just heard by Parvisi, and he has also been a champion of aspirin. I've been a champion. The first paper that we wrote on the use of aspirin was with Paul Lakovich in the late 70s. We looked at the first 800 total hips done at HSS, and we showed then that aspirin was effective and better than Coumadin. And in fact, with Dick Rothman, more than once, I tease him because he continued using Coumadin forever. Uh-huh. I kept telling Dick, it's time to give it up. Start using <laughs> aspirin. And then, uh, Parvisi, you know, <laughs> uh, has published a lot on it, validating the importance that aspirin can the effect, the positive effect of aspirin. And even he has proposed low-dose aspirin, only 81 milligrams. I still use 325, and I do use the oral anticoagulants in patients who have high risk. Because certainly there's there are patients who have a high risk, uh, especially those who have a family history or those who have had 
previous thromboembolic events, particularly if they are unprovoked. Those patients who come with a history that they had a clot into my lungs without any reason, those patients are at high risk. And uh, we also did a study on that because we looked at about a large pool of patients with that we had, and only about 50% of the patient who developed thromboembolic disease after total hip had a predisposing factor. So we looked at the 50% that did not have a predisposing factor and found that the majority of those patients had genetic predispositions, either thrombophilia or hypofibrinolysis. And those patients had to be anticoagulated. As I say, uh, during surgery, we give them 10 units per kilogram before we invade the canal, the intramedullary canal, and then we will start them on a low dose of oral anticoagulants. I think this could be helpful for younger surgeons and people, you know, other people in the young arthroplasty group. If you could like take us back to, you know, you, the young Dr. Silvati, you had this really bad complication. You had a patient that passed away and how you dealt with that is very inspirational. You know, you, you took it to heart and you kind of dedicated yourself to figuring out the problem. Can you just take us back to, you know, what went through your head at that time and, you know, how you kind of collected yourself in such a way to make it beneficial, not only for you, but for the rest of the, you know, arthroplasty community? Well, as I said, it was very, very distressing to me. It was the first patient I lost. Plus, as I said before, this guy was a bishop from Poland, brought by the parishioners from this local church. But, you know, I was really shaken. But I tell you, the most interesting thing was that the sister came the next day. By then, she has recollected herself. And with the translator, she came back to thank me and told me God decided that it was time for him to join him in the kingdom of heaven. So I tell you, that was absolutely one of the worst experiences I had, but really convinced me that we had to concentrate on how to avoid that complication. No, that's great. And yeah, so, you know, I think you've had a lot of success in your career, obviously, with the Hip Society, International Hip Society, your research, you know, you've uh, trained, you know, hundreds and thousands of residents and fellows and given talks and invited lectures and speeches all around the world. In your career itself and clinically, what do you think is that you're the most proud of and what do you want to kind of be your legacy and in, in that you're most re remembered about? You know, what makes me most proud and gives me more, most joy is the friendship that I had established with many of my fellows. 
When I started in 1972, when Dr. Wilson asked me if I wanted to run the hip service, he gave me a social service, a physical therapist, and a fellow. And Paolo Lietti was my first fellow. And from 1972, between research fellows and clinical fellows, until 2000, I probably had about 50 of them. And many of them have remained very close friends of mine. And I have enjoyed being with them. And also many of them became very, very successful due to their own professional achievements, contributions. In fact, five of them have been president of the HIP Society. John Callahan has been the president of nine orthopedic organizations. He was twice the president of OREF. He was my fellow in 1982, mm -hmm. and I consider him a close friend. Amazing, uh, such, a, such an underachiever. <laughs> <laughs> In a good way. <laughs> and uh, Jay Lieberman and uh, Kevin Garvin and Matthias Bostrom is in the presidential line to the HIP Society. So I'm very happy that uh, they have had such a great su success. And there are also very many others who are members of the HIP Society and International HIP Society, including. So that's probably what gives you the most joy from the professional point of view. Yeah, it's well, fantastic. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, Dr. Salvati, you know, it's really, this has been a, such an amazing conversation. And I think, especially as young surgeons, and Brian was saying this before, you know, there's so many things that I think all of us don't know all the background about and all of us really take for granted as young surgeons entering such an incredible field and you certainly are really one of those giants that we all walk on the back of uh you know from being in the garage watching sir charlie make teflon implants <laughs> that were bound to fail to really kind of drawing a clear answer for vte prophylaxis and and everything in between, inspiring other leaders and giants in the field as well. It's really such an amazing opportunity to meet you and to share this conversation and everyone who has the opportunity to listen to this conversation. What a gift. So thank you so much for being here with us. I would like to add another contribution that I think we made, if I can. Please. Absolutely. And that is that in the early 80s, the FDA did not approve antibiotic impregnated cement. In fact, when we started using Totally Hip, we had to smuggle the acrylic cement from Canada. And in the early 80s, the FDA would not approve the Palacos gentamicin cement. So with Tim Wright and Barry Browse, we did a three-pronged project. Barry Browse did the, he's an infectious disease specialist, excellent at our hospital. 
So he did the bacteriological aspect. Tim Wright, who is our biomechanics expert, did the biomechanics, and I did the clinical aspect. And we did a prospective study with Bob Fitzgerald of Mayo Clinic to demonstrate the efficacy of gentamicin in total hip replacement. And we did over close to 80 reimplantations between HSS and Mayo. And we were able to demonstrate that the recurrence rate with gentamicin resistant bacteria was double what the recurrence rate was with gentamicin sensitive bacteria. And Kevin Garvin published that study. And eventually we were able to get the FDA to approve Palaco cement. We also demonstrated in that study by looking at the levels of gentamicin in the drain of patients after surgery, that you could get seven times higher the levels of gentamicin in the periprosthetic tissues than you can get through systemic administration. Seven times higher the first day, about five times higher the second day, and then it slowly decreases, but it's significantly higher than what you can get through systemic administration. And it obviously has significantly less risk of autotoxicity and kidney toxicity because it's just local elution. And we were very happy that eventually the FDA approved uh, gentamicin cement. And I think that was also a significant contribution, I believe. Yeah, definitely. Antibiotics meant so widely used in primaries and for, you know, obviously critical in the treatment of an infection. So definitely is another thing we take for granted every day, just being able to use antibiotics meant in, in different fashions and different dosages. In fact, we presented that work to the Hip Society and we were also given a, an award from the Hip Society. And again, as I mentioned, the co-authors were Tim Wright, Barry Browse, and John Callahan. He was a lead author. <laughs> Fantastic. It sounds like many, many award papers. <laughs> I'm still trying to get my first one. <laughs> I'm, sure I'm sure you'll get very many, Brian. Uh, well, Dr. Savai, thank you again. Really such a gift to share this time. And thank you for everything that you've done. Um, this is feels like such a great way to honor your work as a real you know, arthroplasty legend. We're grateful to you. Pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you for joining us for the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.